911. What is your emergency? Ladies never kiss and tell, but we do kill and tell. Happy Monday, Spooky Cult. It's Kaylee, and this is Kill and Tell Podcast. So a few of you may have seen on Instagram, I did a poll asking when you guys want episodes released, and we are going to be releasing them on Mondays from now on instead of Wednesdays, which I think kind of works out better for everyone. All right, coffee of the day, guys, coffee corner. I actually just made a simple caramel macchiato at home, but yesterday I had a really good coffee I wanted to share for my coffee corner. I had a blueberry cobbler iced coffee, black, from The Green Room in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and if you haven't checked them out yet, you definitely should. I should have bought two, one with no ice, so I could have one today because that sounds really good right now. (laughs) All right, guys, so I'm just going to jump right into it today. Um, Today's case is J.B. Beasley and Tracy Hallett. This case happened in Dothan, Alabama and it happened in the summer of 1999. Dothan is the southeastern part of Alabama, and it lies about 20 miles west of Georgia and about 16 miles north of Florida. Dothan, Alabama has a population of around 68,000 people, which is a fairly small city in retrospect to like Boston or New York or something like that. So this is probably more of like a hometown vibe. Like I almost just told you guys where I am, but like where I am, it's around this many people too. So It's like a big town, small city type of feel. And Dothan was the home of 17-year-old best friends Tracy Hallett and J.B. Beasley. J.B. Beasley was a dancer, model, and cheerleader. She loved country music and attended church twice a week. Her mother describes her as an extrovert who had a distinct, quote, valley girl voice, and we all know what that is. However, sources do say that J.B. and her mother had a very strained relationship and actually For a while, her dance instructor had become her legal guardian. Her dad was in the picture and she often went and visited her dad. He was currently fighting for full custody and in the meantime, she stayed with her dance instructor. Tracy Hallett, on the other hand, was the daughter of Carol Roberts. Carol was a nurse and she was also the daughter of Robert Hallett, who was a Dothan police officer. Unfortunately, though, Robert Hallett passed away in 1987 after drowning at Lake Eufaula when he went there on a fishing trip with some other fellow police officers. Tracy was a beauty contestant finalist and a second-year majorette. She used to say that she wanted to be a doctor when she grew up, and at the time, Tracy was working in a menswear department of JCPenney. However, unfortunately, there seems to be a lot more information about JB than Tracy. The two girls were enjoying their summer before senior year at Northview High School. The girls wanted to celebrate JB's 17th birthday, which fell on August 1st, so they decided to go out to a field party on July 31st in Headland, Alabama. The party was being thrown by their friend Jana Hare. The two girls got ready and left Tracy's house around 10 p.m., and JB drove both of them in her car, which was a 1993 black Mazda 929. I'm sure many of you guys already assumed this, but unfortunately the girls didn't end up making it to the party. 
The girls ended up stopping at a BP gas station in Headland and used a payphone around 10.30 p.m. Then, about an hour later, the girls stopped again, this time at a convenience store called Big Little Convenience Store in Ozark. Ozark is about 20 miles away from Dothan and about 10 miles away from Headland. I'm going to end up putting a map on Instagram of like where all these locations are in relation to one another because it's kind of a lot to keep straight. But at the convenience store, the girls used the payphone to call Tracy's mother, Carol, around 11.30 p.m. Tracy told her mother that JB and her were unable to find the party's location and got lost on their way. Tracy's mom told reporters that Tracy sounded fine on the phone and reassured her that she would be home soon. So all we know right now is they tried going to a party, got lost or couldn't find it or whatever, and now are backtracking on their way home. What we don't know is who the girls called at the BP gas station around 10.30 p.m., and it's speculated that they called their friends to get better directions as to where the party was. Which, okay, typical. I mean, you're not talking to the best navigator on the planet right here. Okay, also, side note, guys, when I post the photo of where all these locations are, you're going to understand why everyone thinks it's so bizarre that they ended up in Ozark because it's the complete opposite direction of where they were supposed to be in Headland. And when you look at the map, it kind of all makes a triangle. So it's like Dothan's in the middle and then on one angle it's Ozark and on the other angle it's Headland. So for them to get that turned around, especially in an area where they grew up, is a little bizarre. But then again, you're talking to not the best navigator. So I mean, things happen. At the convenience store, the girls ended up running into a woman and her daughter. The woman's name was Marilyn Merritt, and they asked Merritt for directions to help them get back to Dothan, and then they left. Merritt told police that nothing seemed to stand out about this encounter. The girl seemed perfectly fine, and nothing stood out to her. She even said that the car was spotless, which I thought was an odd remark, but you guys will understand why she said this later. At around 5 a.m. the next morning, Carol woke up to her daughter's empty bed, which was very unlike her not to come home. Carol's first thought was that the girls may have gotten into a wreck or something may have happened, and immediately her mother's intuition goes off. But then again, teenagers are unpredictable, so she gave it a few more hours before calling the police. It was around 8 a.m. when Carol called the Dothan Police Department to check the area for any car accidents matching the description of JB's car. Little did Carol or the Dothan Police Department know at the time that just a few moments before Carol placed her phone call, Ozark police found a black Mazda 929 abandoned on the side of the road. The car was parked along Herring Ave, which was not even a mile away from the big little convenience store in which Marilyn Merritt had seen the girls. This area where the car was found had no houses, no streetlights. It was just a road surrounded by dense woods on each side. So pretty secluded, not many people saw them. When arriving on scene, police officers noticed that there was no damage to the vehicle and no evidence of foul play. The roads showed that there were no signs of reckless driving, and it didn't seem like the girls were forced off of the road, and it seemed like they pulled over willingly. Even though there were no damages, the state of the car was still suspicious. The car was covered in mud, despite what Merritt told the police that the car was spotless when she encountered the girls, and the driver's side door was unlocked, the seat pushed back, and the window was rolled down just slightly. Upon entering the car, police noticed it was almost out of gas, 
even though it was said that JB had filled it up the day before and had a full tank. JB's license was sitting on the dashboard, now keep this in mind, and her and Tracy's purses were still in the car as well. The only thing that were missing were the keys and the girls. Being a girl myself, I could never imagine leaving my purse behind. I mean, seriously, guys, we carry our entire lives in there. When I tell you, if you don't have it, you are screwed. I mean it. So, Lieutenant Rex Tipton, who was the chief of detectives with the Ozark Police Department, informed Dothan Police of the discovery, and that's when Dothan Police told Tipton that they just obtained a missing persons report for those two girls. So, everything's starting to add up. Well, not really. It was around 2 p.m., and there was still no sign of the girls. At this time, an investigator from Dothan was checking out the car further while waiting for a tow truck to bring the car back to Dothan. While he was inspecting the car, he found a lever to open the trunk from the inside without the keys, which I don't know why it took them from 8 a.m. when they found the car until 2 p.m. to open the trunk, but it's baffling because... They said, oh, we didn't think we could open it without the keys. I'm sorry. I'm a 25-year-old girl, and even I know that. You guys are detectives. Let's, let's get with it. Inside the trunk lie J.B. Beasley and Tracy Hallett's lifeless bodies. Okay, I'm just gonna, like, take a minute because what the fuck. Now I'm gonna dive into the crime scene details, so pay attention. JB and Tracy each had a single 9mm gunshot wound to their heads. However, JB was shot in the cheek and Tracy in the temple. A single 9mm shell casing was found lying on Tracy's leg. It appeared that Tracy was placed in the trunk first, followed by JB. Both girls were fully clothed and showed few signs of a struggle. Tracy did have a scratch on her arm and briars on her clothes, For those of you who don't know what briars are, they're those, like, little prickly things that come off shrubs and stuff, and you might, like, find them on your jeans or whatever if you were, like, walking through a field or going hiking or something. I always find them on my dog. JB was also very dirty. Both of the girls' pants were completely sopping wet from the knee down and covered in mud. Their shoes, covered in mud. But let's go back to when Merritt saw the girls, they and the car were, quote, spotless. So what took them out of the car and into muddy water? After examining the bodies and the car more thoroughly, they found a handprint on the trunk, and it was also determined that the only thing missing was JB's heart-shaped keychain that says, quote, hard to get. The autopsies concluded that there were in fact no drugs or alcohol in the girls' systems, and there was no sign of sexual assault. It was also determined that the girls were killed before they were placed back into the trunk. About two months later, lab results came back and it was actually determined that there was semen on JB's bra, panties, and skin. So even though they said there was no signs of sexual assault, clearly there was some sort of sexual activity going on. So, oddly enough, the time of death was never released, but in the show Haunted Evidence, they covered this case, and they said that the time of death was around 12.30 a.m., 
but I can't find any confirmation on police reports or anywhere else of this time. Now let's get into the suspects. On September 1st, 1999, Johnny William Barantine met with police and gave a four-hour-long interview. During this interview, he literally told police, like, five different stories that all contradicted each other, but this was pretty much what he was getting at. Johnny said, at 11.30 p.m. on July 31st, he told his wife that he was headed out to go buy milk for their two-year-old son, which, okay, why does your two-year-old son need milk at this hour? Like, was he not asleep? He couldn't wait till he woke up to get the milk? And if Berendine's random milk trip wasn't sketchy enough, he also didn't get back home until 1 a.m. I don't know about you guys, but if I absolutely had to go get milk at almost midnight, I would be going to the closest 6-Eleven and getting my butt back in bed, making my trip like 15 minutes tops. So what was it that took him over two hours? When his wife asked him what took him so long, he said that he said that a black truck hit his car with a Dothan tag near Herring Ave, aka where the girl's car was found. Barentine also surprisingly lived about only a half mile away from where the girls were found. A few days later, Barentine ended up telling his friends that he knew exactly what happened to the girls that were found on Herring Ave. And at this point, police were offering a $10,000 reward and his friends encouraged him to talk to police in order to receive the cash. I mean, what could it hurt, right? Barentine's stories to the police started from seeing a black pickup truck to picking up a man with tattoos and giving him a ride to the big little convenience store. And this is when the man got into a car with two younger girls. But the story doesn't end there. The man then told Barentine to follow them, and they both and both the cars ended up driving to Herring Ave when they pulled over. Now, as odd as these stories are, that's all they are. Stories. Barentine's DNA was not a match to the semen found at the scene. And then he finally admitted to making the entire thing up just to get the reward money. Unfortunately, that still doesn't answer our question. Where was he when he was supposed to be getting milk? Did he even come home with milk? Honestly, I think his wife need, needs to be asking him a few more questions because this is sketchy. The next suspect was a man caught on the surveillance camera of the big little convenience store. This man was driving a white pickup truck and stopped at the gas pumps at the same time that the girls were using the payphone to call Tracy's mom. However, the store was closed, so he couldn't have gone in to purchase gas. Police released the video of the truck and nothing, nothing ever came of it. And looking back, Marilyn Merritt never mentioned anything about this, which out of all people, wouldn't she have seen something? Fast forward to March 2000. A woman who lived south of Ozark told police that she heard screaming and two gunshots the night of the murders. Which, first of all, why didn't you tell us this a year ago? And second of all, why wouldn't she call the police when she heard this? I don't get it. Like, I don't care who you are or what you're doing. If you hear a gunshot, you should get involved. Not like go and like see what's happening, but like call police, let them know. FBI investigators and police searched the area where this woman supposedly heard the gunshot. This area was completely surrounded by trees and actually sits 100 feet away from the road. While they were canvassing the area, police ended up finding a 9mm shell casing that matched the caliber casing of the shell found in the car on Tracy's leg. Dun, dun, dun. But investigators sent out the casing and soil samples. Investigators sent out the casings 
and soil samples to forensics to be tested, but those findings are still unknown to the public. With the case getting colder, TV shows such as America's Most Wanted and Haunted Evidence aired episodes about the murders, which I talked about a little while ago. This did help bring in a few new leads, but nothing that was sticking. At this point, rumors started to spread and people came to their own conclusions as to what happened to the girls. Some of these theories included that the police were covering up the crime because of police involvement. People didn't believe the crime scene was processed properly, especially after details emerged about the unopened trunk. Like, why didn't you open the trunk? Other theories actually included that JB was having an affair with a police officer and was killed due to her threatening to tell his wife about the affair. And unfortunately, people just think that Tracy was killed because she was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and she knew and saw way too much that night. The last theory is a little bit more intense, guys. So, a former Ozark police officer named Raina Crum met with a writer named John B. Carroll, and she did this to reveal information regarding the girl's murder. Crum said that she knew who killed the girls and went on to say that the killer was, in fact, an Ozark police officer. Crum told the reporter that almost all of the police officers were involved and knew exactly who killed the girls and were covering it up. She also said that one of the officers threatened her and said to, quote, keep her fucking mouth shut, end quote. Crum believes the night happened like this. She believes that an officer pulled over J.B. Beasley on July 31st, 1999, and demanded that she hand over cassette tapes that he believed that she had. On these cassette tapes had incriminating evidence regarding police involvement in drug activity. The girls were allegedly supposed to testify in a trial happening two days later and were going to submit the tapes as evidence. How and if JB obtained these tapes is unknown, and Crum refused to tell the reporter which officer it was that killed the girls, and she did this out of fear of her own life. On January 29th, 2016, multiple Ozark police officers filed a lawsuit against Crum and John Carroll and some other guy named Dean Matthews for libel, slander, and defamation, but the case ended up being dismissed. But in May 2016, Crum was arrested for harassment. Nothing ever came of Crum's accusations, but it does make you think on what truly happened. I mean, people talk. And when most theories are involving police involvement in a police cover-up, you start to wonder where these theories are coming from and if they have any legs to stand on. Now about the cassette tapes, police never talk about it in the reports. It's never confirmed if it was true. I've never heard anything about the trial. So if you guys can dig up more information on that, that would be cool. But other than that, that's really all I have. After this, the case became cold again. Well, until March 22nd, 2019. Investigators heard of the Golden State Killer and how he was identified through genealogy. So they thought that this could help in their case. So they sent over the DNA evidence that was found at the crime scene to Parabon Labs. This is a company that uses a database for a process called forensic DNA phenotyping. And that uses DNA to predict the appearance and traits of an unknown sample donor or an unknown deceased person directly from biological materials found on the scene. This provides a potential suspect identification through genealogy databases where DNA is given voluntarily 
by people looking to identify family members and stuff like that. When the results came in, police made an arrest. Police arrested Coley McCraney on five counts of capital murder and one count on first-degree rape. At the time of the murders, McCraney would have been about 25 years old and recently divorced from his first wife. McCraney was living about a mile away from where the bodies were found, and he didn't have any prior run-ins with the law. However, after obtaining a DNA sample from McCraney, it was a match to the semen found at the scene. But now I have a question. Just because his DNA matches the semen, does that mean that he killed them? Or could the semen have been there from a day before or an encounter before? We don't know much about JB's love life and we don't know much about her relationship with Colleen McCraney, if there was one. Just a thought. I mean, usually I like to call it as is. Like, if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's probably a duck. But this case has me guessing and I don't know why. But actually, this is such a crazy part. So I watched a video, which I have the link, so I'll put it in the show notes. But J.B. Beasley's father did a video interview saying that the initial autopsy showed no foreign DNA or cells in the vaginal swab conducted on J.B. But it was after the genealogy reports came back that Taryn Bosick, an examiner, said that the DNA that matched McCraney was from a vaginal swab from J.B. So her father thinks that these conflicting results are really suspicious, in which they are. How do you have the original report saying there was nothing on the vaginal swab to this new report saying, no, there was, hello? JB's father also said that someone broke into Tracy's house the week of the murders, and the only room that was ransacked was Tracy's room. He said that he believes that they may have been looking for these so-called tapes and that the tape theory may have some credibility. JB's father honestly doesn't believe that McCraney is responsible for his daughter and Tracy's murders and he thinks it was a huge misunderstanding and that someone's framing him. You guys need to listen to this video because it's going to make you rethink this entire case and every single thing you thought about the case is now a giant question mark. So that just happened in 2019 and to this day, McCraney's trial has been constantly delayed because of COVID and such things like that. To this day, McCraney maintains his innocence and the trial has been delayed as of now. And this is due to like COVID and stuff because obviously it happened in 2019 and that's when the world went to shit. So currently he's awaiting trial at the Dale County Jail and many people who knew McCraney believe that he's innocent and not capable of doing this. He was actually a minister and very involved with his community and has a few children as well. So guys, we have no answers to this case. A lot of people are like, oh great, like they found the killer, like it's open and shut, like we got it. I can't literally say in my heart that this guy is guilty just because his semen matched. The semen found on JB. Okay, this is like what I think. And this is just theory and speculation, but I'm just going to tell you guys my thoughts and you guys can comment yours. So I think that the girls were out. Who knows what they're involved with? I don't know. Like, I'm not going to give any backstory. I just think that they were out. They got pulled over by the police. And that's why JB's license was on the dashboard because she had to give them the license. And I think when they realized, like, maybe it was either someone impersonating a cop or maybe it was a cop that was, like, 
dirty. So when they realized that they were up to no good, I think that the girls got out of the car, which is why it was unlocked. And I think that they booked it into the woods. Maybe the woods were wet and they got to like a swamp or something like that. And that's why they have mud on them. And I think that they were running. I think then they were shot in the area that that woman heard the gunshots near Ozark. And I think the killer took the bodies back to the car, put them in the trunk, took the keys and the keychain, and hightailed it out of there. Whether or not the killer knew them, this was premeditated or not, that's what I think happened. Do I think it was Coley McCraney? Honestly, not really, especially because you don't tend to see somebody murder two people and then not have any run-ins with the law after that. It doesn't seem like somebody can just randomly be a killer and then for the rest of their lives be a regular everyday civilian. I think the cop theories are sketchy. I think that there's too many people talking about it for there not to be something to back it up. And I think that it's sketchy that a former police officer even went as far as bringing them to court over it. So those are my theories. That's what I'm kind of like leaning on. Let me know what you guys think. Um, but yeah, I thought this was case was really interesting and I'm hoping to learn more because I think they rescheduled Coley McCreaney's trial for August. So we'll see what ends up happening. But guys, be safe out there. Um, not saying it was a cop, but even when you pull over for a cop, make sure you're in a well-lit, not secluded area. You want to be surrounded by people. You want to be in the public's eye, especially where CCTV cameras are, because you just never know, especially being a young girl at the age of 17. I feel like I just powered through that episode, honestly. Still confused because there's so many theories that this could go in. But all right, guys, I will catch you on Monday because that is our new day because we're going to start off the week and have a great time. I'm going to go make another coffee because I clearly need it if you can't tell in my voice. But I love you guys so much. And your cult leader says go order your stay spooky sweatshirts because cult rules. And as always, keep it spooky. Oh, 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 oh